First Timothy chapter four, looking in verse six through 10 for first hour today, 11 through 15 or 16 second hour. That's right. We always teach two messages that are consecutive messages on Sunday mornings. We don't come as a church family and nod to God and say, okay, Jesus, I was here and then I'm gone. <laughs> We're here for the equipping of the saints for the ministry of service. And there is no shortcut according to first Timothy chapter four, verses six through 10, which I'll put it on the English on the screen in English for you. And pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine, which you've been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for, that's a bad translation. It's an adjective fit only for old women is an adjective. And it says old womanish. That's a, it's an adjective that we don't have a word for elderly woman ish, but that's what it is. Worldly fables, old womanish, uh, elderly womanish fables or, or myths is what it says. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. See in Paul's day, they had old wives tales too. And today it's on your mainstream news, but um, it's everywhere. And, and the, the challenge here is to not be suckered into lies. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. This is one of those passages that if I read through the text, if I just read through and say, hmm, or if we get in a Bible study and read the paragraph and then everybody tell you, what does this mean to you? Or how does this apply in your life or something like that? If I just read through the solid gold things that I just read through, then I personally, I miss it. I have to make some intentional steps to slow it down, look at it closer and uh, glean. Because I think the gold here, the gold dust is, uh, there's a lot of it, but it's really fine. And you really need to zoom in a little bit to see what's going on. I think that's often true with the words of the apostle Paul. And I have to tell you the impact of reading this in English fast is, uh, indistinguishable in my life from the impact of reading it in Greek slowly. And that's just how this is. And I think there's nothing less going on here than the apostolic philosophy of ministry, the way to think about the ministry to which we've all been commended. Paul is telling Timothy, this is the thing. Now, context. Let's do context real quick. This is Paul's letter to equip Timothy to go pastor in Ephesus and set up what he would do himself if he could go, but he can't. So there's a problem in Ephesus. There's a problem everywhere, but there is witchcraft in Ephesus. There is paganism in Ephesus. There is syncretism among the Christians at times in Ephesus. That means that there, yes, I believe in Jesus, but yes, we also have our things that we used to do. And it creeps in. And this is, this has always been the nature of the ministry of the gospel. We have always been presenting Christ on enemy territory. We've always been under opposition. It has always been spiritual opposition, which means demonic. As we saw last time, doctrines of demons, lies that demons tell us that if we believe them, we're disbelieving God. 
And so Paul is setting Timothy up for a battle. We don't know how it went. We don't know the play-by-play. We don't know how the, the game went with Timothy and Ephesus, but we know that we get to Paul's last letter, which is 2 Timothy. He has to tell him, you need to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and get back in the saddle because something happened. So he's throwing him into the breach. He's throwing him into the lions. He's throwing him into the fire when he sends him to Ephesus to do this ministry. And it's great for us. It's great for us because we are in post-Christian America. We are not approaching post-Christian America. We as a people do not think like Christians think. We have segregated our spiritual lives from our political or educational or public lives. And we've restricted almost as though Immanuel Kant was writing our brains. We have restricted the spiritual things to the indiscernible and the real things to the secular, to the disconnected from God. And that's the culture we live in. And I'm drawing a comparison for context. We look at the, the Bible and say, I wish it was like the good old days. They were dealing with paganism on a much more in your face, much more violent scale. And they would be, by preaching Christ publicly, Paul would be beaten. He would be at times tortured for our savior. Now that's not happening in the United States. As much as people like to complain about how evil and wicked and nasty, the freest country in the history of the world is that's not happening today in the United States. That will happen to you in communist China. I mean, it can, it does. It isn't necessarily going to, but where you have law and order, there will be protection of your person. We in Latin have called it the writ of habeas corpus, and you have the right to the protection of your body and it not being seized by people with government and the sword without due course, without due, due process and probable cause and all these things in our justice code. I'm not, I'm not preaching the United States. The United States is today a post-Christian country, and we're like little kids living in our great-grandparents' mansion but we're not paying the bills. We're not maintaining the facility and it's going to get bad before it gets better. I'm certain. So what's my, what's my point? Well, the point I'm just trying to say is if you look outside the Bible to the world and you look at it with the biblical perspective, you're going to say <gasps> it's bad. It's bad. We are worse off today than we've ever been in this country, probably in the last 50 years in terms of race relations because of racism, because racism is now the new vogue. It's popular to divide us by race and say race is the issue. To say that is now racist. The emperor has no clothes in the popular morality. So what do we do? Well, we say, hey, Paul was in a pre-Christian Rome and they would tear you to pieces in the street too. I mean, worse, it was much worse in Paul's day to be a Christian, to proclaim Christ and to tell people that, that you need to trust in the one who loved you and gave himself for you. It's much more dangerous in Paul's day to do that. And so Timothy, uh, I've heard him criticized. Once heard it said, open the Bible to first wimpy chapter four or something because Timothy had trouble because, because at times he's described as, as tearful. And Paul tells him in second Timothy, pick yourself up. 
Timothy is a living martyr in the sense that he went and suffered for Christ. And he had Paul behind him, rocket fuel. You can do this, go do it. Boy, that's helpful when the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ sends you into the work. But that's what's going on in 1 Timothy. And so I want to get some of that rocket fuel for my spiritual life. And I think we'll get it here in Paul's philosophy of ministry for Timothy. And I think for all of us, because of a simple thing, it is what is God's word? What is the word? What is the Bible? If you and I understand what the Bible is, then we will adopt Paul's philosophy of ministry. And if we don't adopt Paul's philosophy of ministry, now watch it. I think this is really tight logically. If we don't adopt Paul's philosophy of ministry, it's because we don't really know what the Bible is. We might say we do. Oh, it's God breathed, but we don't believe it because we're not practicing as if we believed it. If you think I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to you. If you think, well, pastor, pastor doesn't deal with this. I deal with this. Every time we commit personal sin, it is a functional act of atheism because I'm saying that God isn't really going to address this, or I don't really need to think about him right now in this moment, even though he's everywhere present and he even lives in your heart. God, the spirit is in your heart to abide forever. Now we all deal, deal with this challenge. And so the philosophy of ministry, in my view, is a philosophy of life. And I say this phrase, it's a common phrase in ministry, philosophy of ministry. It's related to um, the concept of philosophy of use, people will say. When they're talking about uh, various tools that they're going to use. Like, what's the philosophy of use of this particular tool? And why would I go with this as opposed to that? The, the, the set of wrenches you buy to work on your car. There's a principle behind which ones you buy and which ones you don't. There are lots of options but you have a certain perspective that you have on how you're going to do it. That's philosophy of use. Philosophy of ministry is what we do. And as we get into it, I want to summarize something with you. Our evangelism methods hang on the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. How we approach telling people about Jesus Christ and what they must do to be saved starts with the Savior who died for your sins, not your sins that caused the Savior to die. Understand what I'm trying to say? If you believe you're a sinner and that your sins separate you from God, you do not have eternal life. But if you believe that Jesus paid for your sins, which separates you from God, then you do have eternal life. And the difference between those two ideas is that believing I'm a sinner and believing Jesus died for my sins. That's the difference between not the gospel and the gospel. You can say, well, well, well you got to get people dead before you get them saved. I think it's helpful to, tell, to help people understand why Jesus had to die for them. I think it's vital to tell them this, but it's not the gospel that you're a sinner. It's the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and my sins and the sins of the world. And that's the biblical doctrine of the penal substitution of Christ, his atonement or the securing of forgiveness for our sins by dying in our place to satisfy not Satan, not to prove he's victorious, not to give us an example so that if we follow his example, we'll get forgiveness of sins. No, the forgiveness for us, the atonement is through Jesus taking the wrath of God's righteousness expressed in his justice on our sin. And that defines so much of how we will practice 
the mission of the gospel, to tell people Jesus didn't maybe pay for your sins if you're one of the few. Jesus died for your sins. He's the propitiation for our sins in 1 John 2, and not those of us only, but those of the whole world. See, that's so, so how do you do evangelism? Jesus died for you so that you could have a relationship with God. And I'll tell you the situation is that your sins separate you from God. And we're all born sinners because of the fall. And so we need a savior. And our only hope is not in how bad I feel about our sin. It's not in my regret about sin. It's not in my putting away my sin. It's in Jesus bearing the penalty of the father for my sins on the cross. You understand, like if you hold firmly to a penal substitution doctrine and you bring that into your practice of evangelism, then you're going to emphasize not the person dealing with their sin because there's no dealing with your sin. Jesus alone dealt with your sin. Now, here's the other side of that. If you really believe in the penal substitution of Christ, where he's screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because your sins are poured out on him and judged. If you believe in that historic Christian Orthodox doctrine of the penal substitution of Christ, do you know what you get? The more you as a believer reflect on that, the more you are concerned about personal sin. I've heard it taught opposite. I think, I think it's insane and absurd to say, well, you're just not really going to be sensitive about sin. You've done it. You confess it. You're going to move on. The more you reflect on that Jesus had to suffer for your personal sins, the more you want in your love for your savior to walk with him, the more grateful you become, the more sensitive you become about that walk. And that's good worship. That's godliness. That's the life lived toward God. What I'm saying is people want to see Believers act like it. So they start in the gospel with, okay, so let's start acting like a believer before the person even has eternal life, before they even have the Holy Spirit, before they even have the first idea of really what sin is. That person needs the spirit of God to work in them through the word of word of God. And that's going to be possible when they've trusted in Christ because they heard a preacher because somebody, you, you, some of you, one of you goes to the person in a moment that God arranges and tells them when their heart is prepared by the spirit, Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the dead to give you eternal life and he loves you. And he, he did this for you. It's the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement that makes me able to say that. And the best discussions on methods of evangelism consider this doctrine. What's the doctrine? The substitutionary atonement of Christ. What's the doctrine? The substitutionary atonement of Christ. Why am I emphasizing it? Because it is being rejected. Sloughing off like, like, like a cancerous body, like a leprous body with good tissue going bad and falling off the body in evangelicalism in America and therefore the world. Evangelicalism, I don't even know what that is anymore. So I can see why if you start with your method of evangelism, that first we have to deal with your sin. You have to really, 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 really feel bad about it. And you don't really have Christ until you feel bad enough about your sin. And you need to have God's perspective about your sin before you can have the God in you who gives you his perspective. If you start with bad method and then say, let me figure out my theology, you can easily reject the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But the truth is the gospel is Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. 
I'm trying to illustrate for you how a doctrine gets you into your practice. The doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ tells you how to share Christ with someone else. And if you start with the person about how they got to deal with their personal sin, and that's where the conversation ends, I call that a fail. Now it could be a three or four year conversation and you might methodologically begin with sin because it is the reason for the need for a savior. I get that, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is that the good news that God did something about it. That's a matter of emphasis. I'm saying that in some gospel presentations, the emphasis is sin and in others, it's the the savior. And I'd say one of those would be the way to do it now. If that doctrine affects how we share Christ, and I think it's very important that it does. What doctrine defines our philosophy of ministry? What doctrine defines how we look at being the body of Christ and functioning in it and the ministry God has commended to us? What, what doctrine orders our worship, our assembly? What doctrine tells us how to prioritize our efforts? This is what used to mean be, be evangelical, this doctrine. The evangelical used to mean this, that you believe in verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. You believe that every word proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word of scripture is God breathed. Today, I think they would call that fundamentalist. Read the fundamentals, read what B.B. Warfield wrote. Great scholar that he was about inspiration and inerrancy of scripture in the fundamentals. I'll own it. We're fundamentalists. In that sense, in the, in the historic sense, not in the ignorant sense of today's drive-by conversation. In verse 6 of 1 Timothy 4, we have, as we look at it pretty closely, what we want to be. This is very interesting in terms of philosophy of ministry. What do you want to be? What do you want your life to be? Do you want your life to matter? I hear a lot about lives mattering today. The answer to the satanic attack on lives mattering today is that your life matters because God made you. It doesn't matter because of the color of your skin or because of the culture you live in. It matters because you're made in God's image. And anything else than that is a satanic attack on the doctrine of you being made in God's image. And ask the people who've started Black Lives Matter as a movement. They are atheistic at best. We're trained Marxists, they say. That's atheism. That's anti-God. So of course you can't find your value in God as your creator. You have to find it in something less. That's idolatry. What do you want to be? I want to be what God wants me to be. If you're playing the game with me, you're not looking at your Bible. Verse six, I'm asking the question, what do you want to be? Put it in Greek. If you're like me, you're going to have trouble reading that without some help. But he starts off with these things by laying these things down, who put to Thame to literally, it's a, it's a word picture. And they, he says, pointing out in the new American standard, they translate by pointing out these things. It actually means to lay down and to, to set before it's like someone presenting you the thing here is the pitch. Here's the spiel. That's what he's saying by laying these things down. Now it means teaching, but he's describing it as laying it down in front of you. It's a great word picture that doesn't come out by pointing out. This is the, the horror of English translation is you have to, you have to pick something. But, the, but I think that the style of by laying this out for people, 
is much more compelling. By laying these things down for the brethren so they can understand them, so that the things that I've taught you about hanging on to God's word and rejecting these lies, the doctrines of demons and asceticism in the previous context, by laying these things down for the brethren, you get to be what you want. You will be a good deacon, diakonos, a good servant of Jesus Christ. This, beloved, is the first question of a good philosophy of ministry is what does it give me? What will I be if I have it? I'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't want to be a servant. Well, then you're a fool. Because this is the greatest thing you can be. One in the pattern of your Savior who takes on the role of the suffering servant of the Lord. The one who puts on the towel after taking off his outer garment and washes his disciples' feet as a household slave, as it were. Of course, you want to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is just for Timothy. He's an apostolic emissary. This is an occasional thing that only applies to Timothy. Beloved, it's a model for us. I'll show you in a minute. He's going to say as an example for everyone. The minister of the gospel, every time you talk about the ministry of the gospel, there is the overriding concept of example setting and people following the good example that's presented. Paul sets himself up as the example in the first part of 1 Timothy. He tells Timothy to be an example. He says the same thing to Titus. It is everywhere you go. Become imitators of Christ. I'm sorry, be imitators of me even as I imitate Christ. Therefore, as beloved children, imitate God, become imitators of God in Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. And so walk in love, imitators of God. This is the way we do it. We live it in each other's lives, in each other's presence. We become examples, but this is what you want to be. I want to be a deacon, a servant, diakonos of Jesus Christ. Now this is correctly translated servant, not the office of deacon as we had in chapter three. But in chapter three, he says diakonos is the office of deacon. And he's the husband of one wife, by the way. Never the wife of anybody. Always the husband of one wife. Men are deacons, not women. Men are, are deacons, not women. Phoebe is a servant. This word is used in different ways. The, the office in the church in chapter three, the role that we all need to adopt, which is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to temper this doctrine of enslavement to Christ or servitude to Christ. We have to temper that doctrine with what Jesus says in John 14 about not calling us slaves anymore. Paul wrote this after Jesus said these things, but he says, I don't call you my slaves. He calls you a servant, but servant's not greater than his master. I don't even call you a slave anymore. I call you friends because I tell you what I'm doing. The slave doesn't know what his master's doing. And I tell you, I'm training you to do what I do. So be careful about the way the language works. We are to be servants of Christ. We're also to recognize that he has brought us into the intra-Trinitarian fellowship so that we're one with him, but he's become the servant of all. This is what you want to be. This is the highest and most exalted thing you and I could ever aspire to. It is the greatest ambition of the Christian hope for your own life. If you want to be selfish and think about what is the best that I could do with me, what is the highest that I could ever attain? It would be that I could be called legitimately a servant of Jesus Christ. If you don't have that aspiration, you're missing it. You're starving spiritually. You don't get what we're here for. You still think it's about you. But see, if Timothy will teach them the apostolic doctrine 
then he'll be a servant of Christ. It's an if then. And it's also a by means. By means of teaching these things, you will therefore be a good servant of Christ because a good servant does what the master wants. I love listening to uh, anecdotal comedy stories by uh, a man who died in the early 2000s. Born 50 years to the day before I was born. September 28th of... Uh, uh, 1926, uh, 1936, Jerry Clower, 1926, sorry, 26, Jerry Clower, ever heard of him? He's hilarious. He would be the comedian that would open up, um, in a comedy little, little set before the players would come on in the Grand Ole Opry down in Nashville. So he's a he's country. He's from Mississippi. That's how he said it. Mississippi. That's Mississippi for us that enunciate. He had some all kinds of great things he would say. And he, he bragged about how his comedy could always be, you could, you could say anything he said, it could be preached from a pulpit and he would never violate anyone's conscience. It was always clean. And you could you know, bring your family to his show. Love Jerry Clowell. He's an old, uh, he's a voice from another time. World War II veteran. Really commend his, his comedy to you because sometimes we do need to laugh at ourselves. And I think often, I think you need to laugh every single day. And if you don't look at stuff like Jerry, you will not probably have a lot to laugh about. But anyway, Jerry had some good advice for young people. I think it's one of the greatest principles in life. And it's right here in verse six. He said, youngsters need to know. He said this in like 1978 or something. Youngsters need to know that if you want to be successful in this life, that's pretty close to how he sounded. I think, I, I think. If you want to be successful in this life, you need to figure out who's in charge and give them what they want. <laughs> it's the simplest thing in the world. Figure out who the authority is and then do what they want within the bounds of the, the, the charter of that authority, not to violate your conscience and do something you're not supposed to do. But if you're, the, if you're at the job and there's the boss and the boss says, these are the duties and these are the priorities. And so do these things. What you need to figure out is how quickly you can get that done as best as you can. And that's success in life. That's Joseph. That's how you become the trustee in the prison and eventually the prime minister of Israel or of, of Egypt. Because you figure out who's in charge, you give them what they want. And so it's a great life principle. It's a no brainer. And anybody in charge of anything that has people under you, you know, absolutely. That's exactly what they need to do because there's a whole thing going on. There's a whole organization. And if we don't do what needs to be done at the bottom level, the organization fails. So we have to be on, we're on, on mission. And so this is what you want. You want Jesus to say, that's somebody that gives me what I want. Final word on this verse or in this part of the verse the theology is of the great wanter. I talked about this in the prayer discussion of thy will be done. We all have things that we want, but we're not as good at wanting things as God is because we don't have as much information and we don't have the moral perfection of infinite righteousness defining our character. And we're not omnibenevolence in our loving. We want to be like our father. We're growing to be like our father this way, but we're not like him. We don't know everything and we don't love like he does, like infinitely. And we don't have perfect righteousness. And so he's much better at everything he does than we are, including wanting. What God wants for you is infinitely better than anything you could want for 
yourself. So when you say, figure out who's in charge, it's Jesus, and give him what he wants, it's the Great Commission, which is what Paul is elaborating on here as he's sending Timothy to go make disciples. When you figure this out, the greatest possible thing you could do with your life is give God what he wants because he wants nothing but the highest and best for you. Remember the God of the cup overfloweth, the God of the banquet spread before you in the presence of your enemies. You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ because you're being trained. I don't know, nourished. And trefo in the Koine period is used to mean trained, reared, raised like a child in his family's household. Trefo can mean nourished, but entrefo means to be reared. And so it's not so much about metabolism as about development, being trained, which includes eating and discipline and, and all that's necessary in a developmental process to grow up because you're being trained in the word of the faith and in the word of the good teaching, which you followed. This beloved is what we want to be by laying these things down for the brethren. You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Again, the highest aspiration you and I can entertain. And this is why by laying these things down, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. This is why it's true because you are being trained. It doesn't say you have been trained in my English Bible. I got my finger in the text says nourished, but it also, they put constantly nourished. So what they're saying is correct. It's a present participle. It's saying it's ongoing. You're never trained. You're always being trained. Now, compared to where you started, where you are today, better be way down the line. If you're far along, if along, if it's been a while that you've been a Christian, then you, you ought to be more mature today than you were yesterday or many yesterdays ago. But guess what? We're not there. We're still growing. We're still developing. Beloved, this is the nature of godliness. This is the ministry to which we all have been commended. You are being trained. In the word, Lagos, in the word, this is our philosophy of ministry trained in the word, which word, the word of the faith. That is the body of truth that has been deposited that which you believe, not, not the believing itself. In this case, he's talking about the stable thing that you believe in the word of the faith. This has nothing to do with name it and claim it theology that if I really want something, I want this pulpit. I claim it for God and believing I will receive. That's not what he's talking about. The word of faith movement. He's talking about the message of the apostolic deposit of truth, where the Holy spirit through the apostles of the new Testament and the prophets of the old Testament has given us the word of God. He's talking about today, what we call the Bible, the word of the faith. What is your doctrinal statement? Preston city Bible church, the Bible. What's our summary of it? It's in our doctrinal statement. Which one's more authoritative? The Bible. We love our theology, but it's a summary. It's a human summary. You're being trained in the word of the faith. And now this is the construction that as I just read, I don't get it. As I, as I look at it and account for my genitives, I get it. And of the good teaching. 
you have to account for the genitives. It's just like in uh, Ephesians 2, 2, 2, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. There's two genitives and they're both pointing back to this word, logos. The word is described as, first of all, that deposit, which is the faith. And then it's the word of the good teaching, the good doctrine, didascalia. I believe that reading through the text is a very important thing to do, but I believe the teaching of the word of God is essential to our spiritual growth. It's how God does it. It's a protocol that he's established. You, Timothy, are being trained by this very writing in the apostolic doctrine. Now, let's compare ourselves to Timothy for a minute. It might bother you that Timothy didn't have a New Testament. Timothy is the recipient of two letters of the New Testament. Eventually, he had two letters. We know that early on, they're copying and, and circulating Paul's letters. We know that very early on, they're making copies and distributing the copies of the Gospels. But to, in terms of compiling this thing together, I doubt, I doubt Timothy ever saw. I, I, I am almost 100% certain Timothy never saw a New Testament. Christians did not invent the codex, but we popularized it. What's a codex? A codex is a scroll that it doesn't scroll anymore. That instead of sewing sheets together of, well, originally like skins to make long scrolls and you, you scroll them up. Instead of doing that, we'll cut a bunch of sheets the same size of papyrus. That's the Egyptian way. Or a lot of times vellum or, or parchment, calf skin. We'll cut sheets and then we'll do a crazy thing. We'll invent a, a new technology. I mean, we think we're smart with our technology. These people decided to bind the edge of a bunch of leaves together to make what was called a codex. And in English, we call it a book. Christians did not invent, we, we think archaeologically Christians didn't invent the codex, but we made it popular. And that's why our book is called the book. Timothy never had what you had. The difference between us and Timothy is startling. Now, Timothy had a, a prophetic ability. He had a, an apostolic laying on of hands to establish him in his ministry, as we'll read. We don't have that. We don't have apostles. Paul, Paul was a witness to the resurrected Christ. We don't have that today. We have their word, in this case, to Timothy. But they, we, we have so much more, if you think about it, than, than Timothy had. He had the pieces of that, what Paul is saying, and I doubt not that he memorized these words. I doubt not that he spent, he spent his life reading the Old Testament scriptures, which he had access to. Probably in Greek, probably in the Septuagint for the most part. And that is the word of the faith. The message of the good teaching. And it's something that was constantly refreshing. Timothy was saturated by it all the time. And it wasn't just watch this beloved. It wasn't just that he was being taught and refreshed in the word. Oh, I, that's some good teaching. Mm, I love to get that good teaching. I do, but it was not that foolish teaching that goes unheard and wasted which you have followed, they followed. Timothy followed that good teaching. What's the uh, biography of Timothy? Timothy is uh, probably a little kid 
a very young child, when Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 are abandoned by John Mark. He goes back home and they go on up into Pisidian Antioch and then Lystra and Derby. And I believe it's in Lystra where in that Galatian town, Southern Galatia in the Roman province of Galatia, Paul meets Timothy and his parents. He disciples that family. And then on the second missionary journey, many years later or several years later, Timothy is a man who can go with Paul. Paul circumcises him because he's a half Jew and he's going to go into Jewish territory. And that's a conscience, a matter of conscience and the Abrahamic covenant, which hasn't, hasn't been canceled, will never be canceled. The Abrahamic covenant is an eternal covenant. So Paul takes Timothy along with him in ministry and trains him all along the way. Timothy had the apostolic deposit. He heard Paul's sermons all through the travels. And then every time he had a question, just like when the disciples would ask Jesus, Paul was there to train Timothy. Now he's been with them long enough. They've discoursed enough. They have enough of a rapport. And Paul trusts him enough that, okay, this major ministry initiative, you need to go take it over because I can't go. This is our philosophy of ministry, beloved. It's the word of God. And it defines how we order our meetings. Obviously, this church, we focus on the word. Great personal expense. It means we're going to be small. It means we'll be small. And that is okay. Because if we look left and right, we will leave the word and start doing 90s style governance. In the 90s in uh, government, it became popular to take polls see what the people wanted, and then introduce legislation to give them what they wanted. At least to make speeches so that people heard what they wanted to hear. This is done in church today. This is how the churches function. See what the people want and then give them that and more of it. And if by any chance we can pause in the tickling people's ears to actually tell them something of consequence that'll change their lives, well, that'd be great too. And it's the problem of culture. Culture's always been a problem, and we've always been in the culture, but not of it. We've always been in the world, but not of it. We've always been a product of God's word and how his word interfaces with the culture. And so we've needed to be fluent in each culture to be able to do that. Six ideas for you, beloved, to uh, think about. That's a fail. Six ideas about how to think about your philosophy of ministry. How many conversations have I had with people? Pastor, can I get a cup of coffee? Can we, can we, can we meet for coffee? Usually that means, if we haven't met for coffee before or a lot, usually that means that this is the farewell conversation. <laughs> I'll just share with you. Um, looking through the church rolls and the archives, there's a lot of people that used to be here and are not here. They're around, but they're not here. And in my opinion, they should be. And usually the conversation goes with something like this. Pastor, first of all, it's not the preaching. <laughs> it's always the preaching. That's all. That's, that, it is, it is, the, the preaching is how we get to be the good servants of Christ. The preaching is everything. In terms of capability, because there's no doing what God said unless we first learn it. 
So yeah, it, it is the preaching. Well, but what he means, what they mean is I'm not rejecting the preaching. But what are you looking for? The answer is, Pastor, if I could say it clearly, I don't know what to say. They just, we're leaving. We've decided we're leaving. What they, what they need to say is, I reject Preston City Bible Church's philosophy of ministry. You're too deep in the word. It's too much. There's too many details. You say things that we don't understand or don't need to know. And I've decided that I'm going to go where it's a little easier. I understand. And I am sensitive. I want to make it accessible. I definitely want all the cookies to be on the bottom shelf. At the same time, I want you um, receivers to go jump a little bit to catch the football. I want to challenge you. But I want it to be a constant stress. So I want to say what I gleaned from 1 Timothy 4, 6 and the philosophy of ministry and really the conversation that we always need to be able to have with one another about what we're doing as a church family. This isn't just my idea, but it is my experience. And I can say I'm very partisan to it because I've lived it not perfectly, but it's been a great life. When Paul says, first of all, a good servant of Jesus Christ, this, this is indicating our primary desire in life, what we want more than anything else to be pleasing to the Lord. Paul says it's our ambition in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Does anyone remember why he says it's our ambition to be pleasing to him, whether in the body or out of the body, we want to be pleasing to him. It's a personal relationship issue for us. And no, we're not de denying God's grace that we are satisfactory to God in position. It's that in our practices and our hearts and our attitudes and our words and our lives, we seek to please him. It's like somebody you really love who has better standards than you, who has higher expectations than you, who knows better about what you're capable of than you. Our primary desire is not for equity. Our primary desire in life is not a change in the social environment or the economic status. These are all passing away. If there was nothing but this life, as the atheists claim, for example, the founders of Black Lives Matter, if all there was was this life and there was no eternal future or a God who's construing eternity, then maybe we could talk about how the only thing you can really do in this life is figure out the economics and make everything the same for everyone. But since we do have a creator and since eternity is coming, whether you like it or not, this is the actual desire. We are seeking not autonomy, but servitude to God. If that's not a lovely thought to you, you've got a problem with your creator. You've got a problem with your identity and your design. Second, this is the goal of our temporal lives because of its eternal results. It's not just that God is and, and we want to serve him. It's that God is and we want to serve him because how we deal in this life with him has everything to do with what we're doing with him in the eternal state. And I'm talking to believers in Jesus Christ. I understand not everybody that may be hearing this is a Christian. Don't get the wrong idea. I'm only talking about the service that believers are to render. You don't devote yourself to service of Jesus in order to come to have the life that he offers. You trust in Jesus who served you, who died for your sins and your place. You take his gift. You're not bringing a gift of your service. You're receiving the gift of his 
And that sets you apart to God, and that's called justification. That's the sanctification work that God sets you apart to himself in Christ Jesus. That's for, belief, for, for people that don't know Christ. You need to deal with what Jesus did for your sins on the cross, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. That's the gospel. But you who are Christians, who have the spirit of God in you to make you witnesses for Jesus Christ and this awesome mission he's commended the church. Well, you need to see yourself as eternally beholden to the greatest the greatest human being who ever lived. There is no celebrity but Jesus Christ because compared to him, they're all just ashes. I don't care how great they are, how prominent, how in interesting, how delightful. There's no one like Jesus Christ. Of course, you want to be his servant. The goal of our temporal lives is to be pleasing to him because of the eternal results, according to the apostle Paul. And he says it this way. Our ambition is to be pleasing to him for verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Here's why. Because we must all stand or appear before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, to receive from him recompense, payback for the deeds that we've done while in our bodies, whether good or bad. Paul puts the eschatological consequence of being pleasing to him in your motivation because you're limited, because we're weak, because we, can, we can't see God. So we need to look at eternity in terms of cause and effect. That's how he does it. Third, how we get to be pleasing to God this way is how Timothy would do it. To be pleasing to him with a good outcome of the judgment seat of Christ, Paul tells Timothy how to do it. How do you do it? Because you're being trained is the answer. Fourth, because you're being trained. We're constantly in need of refreshment in the things of God through his word. That's the nugget. That's the philosophy of ministry. What about worship? If you are properly equipped in the assembling of God's people, then you will have a life of worship. The idea that church assembly is a place where we worship and get a little bit of the word is, is, is the popular norm today. It means that you go to church and you have an experience of feeling something and you're singing to God. And if the word happens, well, that's a bonus. But if, if we have to have a, a pageant or something, you know, that, that week, well, we'll miss out on the word. Not ever. Not if I'm going to be faithful to what Paul tells Timothy to do. Because you're being trained in the word. That's what secures for you and me the well done. Why? Beloved, not just because you know it, but because you follow it, because you're practicing what he says, because you're trusting him and so obeying him. Fifth, the training is specific, constant intake of the word of the faith and of the good doctrine which we followed. That's, that's it. That's not the preaching. Beloved, it's the preaching. And if it doesn't cause growth, if you're like, I don't understand what he's saying. I just I've had people say, um, almost like in rush hour, uh, do you understand the words coming out of my mouth? Says Jackie Chan. And then Chris Rocks or Chris Tucker says, nobody understands the words coming out of your mouth because the Chinese, um, heavy Chinese accent. People will say, I just don't understand what you're saying up there. I just don't understand anything. And that happens, I, I suppose. And I have, I'm not here to pastor everybody. I get it. I can't be everyone's pastor. God has shown me that uh, in so much detail. 
But everybody is beholden to this philosophy of ministry if we're serious about the word, if we're serious about what Paul says. If we're going to really be Christian and therefore apostolic, then we're going to have to have constant intake of the word of the faith and of the good doctrine which, we've, which we followed. And by the way, there's a discipline factor here, Christians. Those who follow Jesus Christ, there's a discipline to this. Very rarely do we feel like getting up and studying the word. We, for the most of us, I know some of you are like, no, I'm hungry all the time. Rather have the word than eat. I know there's some of you like that at times, but the world we live in where we're seeing so much and we're constantly bombarded with such distraction. Yeah, it's, it's a discipline. Say there are many alternative uses for this time, but good economics, eternal economics is to take this resource of time now and use it for God to get to know him, to be part of what he's telling me. We open and close our messages with prayer because it's a personal relationship with God that we're seeking and what we say. And sixth, by saying that the whole philosophy of ministry is a saturation with the word, so I'll do it, that that's it. There's nothing else. Well, what about the music? That should be a consequence of your saturation with the word. What about praising God in worship? In singing, that's part of the saturation of, of the word. That's be filled with the spirit so that you speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And singing, make melody in your heart to the Lord. That's a consequence of the word being in you because of the filling of the spirit. See, your life by this idea of the word implanted, imparted, lived out. If that's your philosophy of biblical Christian ministry, then it simplifies your life. It's all about believing and doing the word. It's all about believing and doing the word. Are there challenges to thinking biblically in the time in which we live? For example, the horrors experienced in American chattel slavery, European chattel slavery, the awful concept of, of uh, just sex slavery today, that little girls are being kidnapped around the world and sold for, for sex slavery. The horrors of the, the, the world that we live in where men are wicked toward men only demonstrate the biblical doctrine taught in Genesis chapter three that we died in our relationship to God and therefore we need a savior to save us from ourselves. But anytime you get an answer besides the savior who has no sin and saves you from your sins. Anytime you get a different answer for him or, well, this is a, this is a, a follow on comparing comparative answer. Anytime you, you get something besides the Lord Jesus died for your sins and saves you from yourself so that you're fit in the power of God, the spirit to serve him according to his word. And if you get something besides that as the focus, the goal, the desire, the work that you have in this life, then you're missing it by an infinite degree. It's a hard truth. You're not going to fix the world. You're not called to fix the world. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations by making sure that everybody pays a flat rate tax. That's what God set up in Israel. Tax percentage. It's a percentage. Whatever you have, you pay a flat percentage of that. That's, that's righteousness. 
Not a graduated scale for the rich pay a lot more and the poor pay a lot less or any, a percentage. Everybody has their cut. You might have a small percentage because you have small. You might have a large percentage because you have large, but everybody is equally oppressed. That's, that's equality. That's, that's righteousness in Israel and the way God set up the law. And God said, you know, go, go build a government that'll do that. No, we already had a government in world history that did that and it failed and they went into idolatry and found themselves enslaved by all the Gentile kings. You don't like the flat tax? Okay, you're now slaves. Nebuchadnezzar, the Assyrians, and then the Medo-Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans and eventually the revived Roman Empire and then Jesus comes and says, okay, we're gonna do this in righteousness. And you, he didn't tell us to go set up a government. He told us to recruit those who would rule with Jesus in his coming government. That's our mission. That's our philosophy of ministry. And there's no other way to making disciples of Jesus than what he said. There's a baptism that happens after evangelism, after they become Christian, after they believe in Christ as their savior. And then there is the teaching them to keep all that he commanded. That's the word of God. That's what Paul is doing here. And as after all, and we're surveying Timothy because this is the Christian life of Paul. Paul is elaborating on what Jesus taught in his last words in the Great Commission. Throughout his teaching, he is making disciples of the nations. By us being inculcated with this Christian Christ given through the Holy Spirit truth through the Apostle Paul and comparing what the other apostles said Jesus said. Like Matthew, we've, we've quoted him in Matthew 28. Seeing this comparison, this is a consistent message through the scriptures and it is what our life is all about. The church I grew up in was a teaching church, unapologetically. And I don't know what the view of the Great Commission was there, but um, we were being taught constantly of the Word of God. The church I grew up in as a teaching church understood this emphasis, that it's going to be the Word and it's the only way that we're going to grow. It's the only way we'll be about what we're supposed to be about. If your children go here and grow up here, the church they grew up in will be a church focused on the word of God, on its transformative power in our hearts, on the character building, the character of Jesus Christ being established in us. And then the clear thinking that happens as a consequence. And you know what you'll never have? It'll never be a poster stapled onto a, to a, a picket saying, you know, this is my bumper sticker. You can't do it. Our bumper sticker, our summary, our slogan is right here. This is it. It's the word of God, which is alive and powerful. And that means that I can't just quit thinking and start waving my, my picket around. It means that I have to be back in the book. And after a time of, 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 of refreshment in the word, I'm going to go live it. And I'm not going to get real hungry before I'm back in the word. And it's going to be a saturation of my life, of my soul. And one thing I hope I've shown you today, reading through a passage is valuable, but really digging into it to see how the thing is being said can make all the difference in the world. Our Father, we bow our heads in gratitude for your word, for its transformative power, for the thinking of your son through, through the Holy Spirit, to the apostle, to us. Father, we don't have any expectation in ourselves that we'll be successful in being a servant of your son, as Paul described for Timothy. We don't think in ourselves we have it. We don't have the horsepower. We don't have the juice. We can't do it. 
Furthermore, we don't deserve it. To the extent that we've neglected your word, we deserve to miss out. But Father, you don't give us what we deserve. You give us what your son deserves. Thank you, Father, for showing us through the prophet David, through his writing, that in your house our cup runneth over. That there's mercy, goodness and mercy running after us all the days of our lives because we're with you. Father, we want to be successful as you define success. We always ask for it. We know that this is also to ask for wisdom, which you're happy to give us in abundance. I pray for our church family, everyone in the hearing my voice, Father, that we would be serious about the awesome work to which you've commended us. Let us adopt the apostles' philosophy of ministry. It's very simple. It's the word taken in and lived out in a life of worship. We want to have a life of good worship. We know that means to be on mission. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.